You can trust God further than you can see Him. That's what we'll see in God's Word today. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. I don't know about you, but it's been good for me to be in this book for the last uh, four weeks or so. We're finishing out our Advent series today, even though it's not officially Advent. But since the word Advent actually means coming, and since we're still waiting for the final coming of Jesus, I guess technically we're still in Advent, and we always will be until Jesus returns. In fact, this passage is actually all about the final Advent of Jesus when He will shake the universe like a snow globe and make all sad things come untrue. So we're finishing Haggai today, and what we'll see about our God should be plenty enough to take us by the hand and lead us into the new year. The prophet Haggai will send a text message to Zerubbabel and tell him, you can trust God further than you can see him. Now, I stole that phrase from Matthew Henry's commentary where he said this, the better God is known, the more he is trusted. Those who know him to be a God of infinite wisdom will trust him further than they can see him. Those who know him to be a God of almighty power will trust him when creature confidences fail and they have nothing else to trust to. And those who know him to be a God of infinite grace and goodness will trust him though he slay them. Those who know him to be a God of inviolable truth and faithfulness will rejoice in his word of promise and rest upon that though the performance be deferred and intermediate providences seem to contradict it. Those who know Him to be the Father of spirits and an everlasting Father will trust Him with their souls as their main care and trust in Him at all times, even to the end. So no matter what happens this year, even if it's worse than 2020, you can trust God further than you can see Him. When creature comforts fail, you can trust God. When you have nothing else to trust to, you can trust God. When everything in your life seems to contradict His word of promise, you can trust God. And if you haven't figured it out yet, this is basic discipleship. This is Christianity 101. This is what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. God's people have to learn over and over and over again that they can trust Him, even when they can't see Him, and even when things don't make sense. In 520 BC, the nation of Judah had to learn to trust what God said over what they could see. They had to trust God even when they couldn't see Him. They had to learn to hold on to what the prophet Haggai was saying in his sermons while they waited for their crops to grow. And as they dealt with opposition while they were rebuilding the temple. And it's a lesson that we have to relearn over and over and over again. We never grow out of this as God's children. We are always being put in situations where we have to trust God. Always. Always. In fact, that's the whole Bible, right? The Bible is full of story after story after story of God's people having to trust Him over and over and over again. 
do we think it's going to be any different for us? Do we think that somehow we get a pass? I hate to burst your bubble so early in the sermon, but I'm sorry, we don't get a pass. This is discipleship. This is Christianity 101. In Haggai, chapter 2, 520 B.C. So look at verse 20 of Haggai chapter 2 and hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So Haggai comes preaching again on the 24th day of the month, which was equivalent to our December 18th. So it's still the same day as we saw last week. This is his second sermon of the day. So I guess this was at the evening service. And he directs his sermon right at Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. He has heard all of Haggai's sermons so far, but now this word of the Lord is exclusively for Zerubbabel, even though it is actually for all of God's people, whether in 520 B.C. or in 2021 A.D. This last sermon by the prophet Haggai is just what Zerubbabel needed, and I think it's just what we need today. A little sermon and a little reminder about who is really in control. And this sermon that Zerubbabel really needs to hear, here's the reason why Zerubbabel needs to hear this, is because of what he has heard his whole life. Zerubbabel's name means seed of Babylon or offspring of Babylon. So Zerubbabel was born while God's people were in exile as slaves in Babylon. So his daddy and his mama named him Offspring of Babylon. How's that for a name? I mean, it's bad enough that it's hard to spell. Did any of you try to spell Zerubbabel this week? I tried to type it several times, and every single time I typed it, there was a red line on my computer. Plus... I mean, and also think about it, it's hard to spell. How many B's are in Zerubbabel? Are there two B's at the front or two B's at the end? Plus, because his name started with the letter Z, he was always the last one called in class. And every time his teacher called his name and took role in class, she said, child of Babylon, seed of Babylon, and he would reply, present. So his whole life, Zerubbabel was reminded every time that he wrote his name or every time that he heard his name, he was reminded that God's people had turned away from the Lord, turned away from Yahweh, and ended up in exile in Babylon as slaves. Every single day, he was reminded that God's people had turned away from the Lord and ended up in exile. But then Haggai comes preaching at the evening service and drops a gospel bomb on old child of Babylon. Haggai tells Zerubbabel that Yahweh is faithful even when his people are fickle. Haggai tells Zerubbabel that that even when we are spectacularly unfaithful and we turn away from the Lord, 
the Lord is committed to us. Yahweh keeps his promises. So what does Haggai tell Zerubbabel? He tells him that Jesus is going to shake the heavens and the earth when he returns in his final advent and that he will tear down every rival kingdom. And Haggai knows his Old Testament because he uses words and images from Israel's history to remind Zerubbabel and company that God is powerful, that he's sovereign, and that he is very much in control and very much involved in the politics and affairs of this world. When Haggai says in verse 22 that God is going to overthrow kingdoms, it's the same Hebrew word used to describe how Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown, Genesis 19. And when Haggai mentions the chariots and riders being destroyed, he's drawing on imagery of Pharaoh and his army drowning in the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. And when he mentions that God's enemies will actually turn on each other and kill each other, he's linking back to what happened in many of Israel's skirmishes with their enemies, like with Gideon and Jonathan in Judges 7 or 1 Samuel 14. And so the prophet Haggai paints this picture for Zerubbabel, borrowing from Israel's past in order to help Zerubbabel in the present. Why does Z-Man... Need help in the present? Well, recall from Ezra chapters 3 and 4 that there was heavy opposition to rebuilding the temple. Haggai doesn't mention it here, but Judah's enemies did not take kindly to them rebuilding the temple. Judah's enemies wrote letters to government leaders and officials and tried to put a stop to public worship. I mean, imagine that. Can you imagine a government trying to stop the church from worshiping? Can you envision a situation where the governing authorities try to stop the church from gathering and worshiping? It seems so hard to imagine that, doesn't it? Not? Perhaps Haggai's evening service sermon just might be something that we need to hear. Call me crazy, but what appears on the surface to be a sort of boring passage here at the end of Haggai 2 just might be what we need right now. You might want to highlight verses 20 through 23. I'm talking the whole paragraph. Oh, they may not give you the warm fuzzies upon first reading unless you're a jeweler. We'll get to that in a moment. But these verses might be what the church needs to hear at this point in history. Imagine an America where churches are told that they cannot worship. It's not so hard to do, is it? But the reality is that even if the church isn't under persecution, even if the church isn't being hindered from worshiping Jesus on the Sabbath, even if we aren't being mistreated, Isn't Haggai's sermon something that we always need to hear? Don't we always need our noses rubbed into the good news of God's sovereign, powerful hand? Don't we always need our noses rubbed into the truth that Jesus is going to deal with his enemies one day and ain't nobody getting away with nothing? Don't we always need our noses rubbed into the fact that God is stubborn? Christian, don't you love that your God is stubborn? 
that he is committed to his people, that he is committed to his promises, he's committed to his bride. Don't we always need our noses rubbed into the fact that God always takes care of his people? Whether in the past like Zerubbabel and company, or in the present like Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California, or in the future when Jesus returns and cracks some heads, don't we always need to be reminded of this? Listen, there is never a moment in our lives where we don't need our noses rubbed into the promises of God. And that's why you should stick your nose into your Bible just a little bit more this year. I think you're going to need it. This is the time of the year when people pick Bible reading plans. There's lots of them out there. I think you're going to need your Bible more this year. And when you stick your nose into your Bible and you rub your nose into his promises, you just might find yourself trusting God. Like the way you trusted him the first time you trusted him when you first came to Christ. All that you need this year is right here in this book. It's what supported Zerubbabel as he dealt with opposition As he oversaw the rebuilding of the temple, it was the preaching of the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. It was God's word which supported him and strengthened him. We read about it in Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So let Haggai's evening service sermon remind you that this book should be priority number one for you. As you step into the new year, this book and all of the promises therein will support you and give you the strength you need to endure trials, to endure suffering, to endure unwanted circumstances, and even to endure persecution. Even government-sponsored and government-funded persecution, because that can exist too. You're going to need this book this year. Martin Luther sang a little ditty and it went something like this. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That might be enough to keep you going one more day. His kingdom is forever. This is your God, Christian. He is sovereign. He is almighty. He raises up some politicians and he tears others down. Nations come and go. And that might include America. There's no guarantee that we're going to be here in 50, 100 years. Jesus demolishes kingdoms and kings and nothing gets by him. Nothing gets by him. Don't think for a second that anybody, anywhere, is getting away with anything. Haggai chapter 2 is in the Bible to remind you that Jesus is coming back on that final day at his final advent, and he's going to crack some heads. 
you might want to rub your nose in Haggai chapter 2 because he's trying to remind you that every kingdom of this world will perish, but the kingdom of God is forever. Haggai actually sings Martin Luther's little ditty, and he actually tells us that God's kingdom is forever in verse 23. He words it a little bit differently, but it's the same idea. God's kingdom is forever. It continues, even if God's servants prove themselves to be spectacularly unfaithful. God's kingdom is forever, and God has the jewelry to prove it. Look at verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So what's the deal here with this signet ring? Is this K jewelers? Every kiss begins with K, right? Well, sort of, because every kingdom begins with K. And Haggai wants to remind us that God's kingdom is forever, even when it seems like all has been lost. The signet ring was worn by kings and politicians on their finger or on a necklace and sometimes even on a bracelet. And kings would use it to stamp their little insignia, their official insignia, into wax documents. Like you make a letter, you put a dab of wax on there, and he stamps his ring into it to make it official. So even though Zerubbabel wasn't a king, even though he was just the governor of this backwoods little country called Judah, God called him a signet ring, meaning that God entrusted Zerubbabel with authority to carry out his will and to continue leading Judah in the rebuilding of the temple and thus extending the kingdom of God in the world. But When Haggai brings up the signet ring in his evening sermon, he's actually linking back to something that happened right before Judah was carried off to exile in Babylon. The king at that time was Jehoiakim, who was actually Zerubbabel's grandpa. He was called Coniah and Jeconiah. And so it can be a little bit confusing as you read the Bible. So Jehoiakim or Coniah, as he's sometimes called, or Jeconiah, as he's sometimes called, he rebelled against the Lord, and he was only king of Judah for three months and ten days before Judah was carted off to Babylon. The Lord brought judgment down on Jehoiakim, symbolically worded as removing a signet ring. The prophet Jeremiah records it in chapter 22, verses 24 and 26. He says, As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, or Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. So Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, ripped away the throne of Jehoiakim, After just three months and ten days. That's how bad he was. And the Lord doesn't just remove him from the throne. He goes out of his way to say that he was removing him from his hand. Like someone taking off a ring and throwing it away. Jehoiakim was no longer the special prize signet ring 
which symbolized the authority of Yahweh. And so when Haggai tells Zerubbabel that he is a signet ring, he's telling Zerubbabel that Yahweh is now reversing the judgment made on his grandpa Jehoiakim, the king at the time of exile. Jehoiakim had been rejected, but now the Lord was reaffirming his promise to Zerubbabel, the grandson of Jehoiakim. Zerubbabel is proof that Yahweh was keeping his promise that he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. And he's keeping the promise that he made to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne, 2 Samuel 7. Remember, God promised David a royal line of kings. And by calling Zerubbabel a signet ring, Yahweh is telling Zerubbabel that he's keeping his promise. The Messiah will come way down this royal line of kings. And so there is present comfort in 520 BC, as if Yahweh says to him, Zerubbabel, you will be safe even as you endure opposition, even government opposition. As you rebuild the temple, I am with you. I am near. But there's future comfort too, not just present comfort. There's future comfort. As if Yahweh also says to him, Zerubbabel, I have reversed the judgment on your grandpa Jeconiah, and I'm keeping my promise that one of your descendants will be my signet ring forever. And we now know, because we read our Bibles, and we've read the New Testament, we now know that that one descendant is none other than God's eternal son, Jesus This prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus. And that's why Jeconiah and Shealtiel and Zerubbabel are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus comes from a long line of signet rings, himself being the true fulfillment. And so in his evening service sermon, Haggai is jumping into this long line of Old Testament preachers who predicted that the Messiah would come. One of Zerubbabel's sons, one of his descendants, Jesus, fulfilled this promise. And because the promise to Zerubbabel has been fulfilled by Jesus, we can be confident that the Lord will keep all of his promises to us. And so when you rub your nose into Haggai chapter 2, and then you jump over to Matthew chapter 1, and you do some more nose rubbing, what you discover is this. God kept this promise that he made to Zerubbabel. And then you will be reminded once again that no matter how dark things get in your life, you can trust God further than you can see him. You can. Listen. I needed this sermon. I need that big idea because I have my life mapped out. This is what I want you to do, Lord. Do this, do this, do this. Give me this, give me this, give me this. Follow my plan. It's so good. I have trouble trusting the Lord beyond the next five minutes because I have my plans. And his plans and my plans very rarely sync up. And I want him to do things and I have to trust him. He's saying to me, you trust me. Your plan, oh man, if you knew your plan, oh, his plan is so much better. And I have trouble looking into the future and trusting him. What about this, Lord? What about that? What if this happens? What if that happens? Wouldn't it be better if you did this? I have to learn to trust him, even though I can't see him. Zerubbabel was just the governor of this small, tiny section in the ancient Near East, no bigger than a nickel, 
Zerubbabel wasn't a big player in politics at all. The nation of Judah wasn't that big of a deal. And we're not much to look at either, are we? We're just a small Baptist church on the central coast of California. But think about that. In our context, that's a miracle. Because we live in one of the most hardened anti-Christian areas in America. And here we are. We're still here. Just like the church in 520 B.C. So yes, the world may look on and think we're crazy and stupid and out of touch. But we know how the story ends. The destruction of God's enemies. Haggai's evening sermon tells us that. So we cry out to our city and to our neighbors to flee the wrath to come. And we don't lose heart even though times are hard, even though there is opposition. Why? Because our God keeps his promises. And we can trust him even when we can't see him. Even when things don't make sense. And that means that you can trust God further than you can see him right now. You like Judah, do not know what is going to happen in the future. You don't know what this year is going to be like, but you can trust that your Heavenly Father will be with you when the future arrives. In fact, God is already there in your future waiting for you, waiting for that situation to show up. You can't see into the future. You can't see what God is doing right now, but you can trust Him further than you can see Him. What did it mean for Zerubbabel to have to wait? What's the same for us? God gives us promises and we have to wait with expectation. We don't wait biting our nails or just, oh, I hope he comes through. We don't wait pacing the floor back and forth. We wait in faith because we know what kind of God he is. And as we wait, we keep rubbing our noses into God's promises because that's how faith stays alive. And so what is our part? What do we do? You can strip it down to two very simple words. Trust Jesus. That's it. That's our part. Trust Jesus. That's very simple. I get it. But if you've been a Christian for very long, then you know that trusting Jesus is not easy, is it? It doesn't come natural to us. It isn't easy for us because of the unknown. Because we don't know what the future holds. But Jesus, please don't misunderstand me. Make no mistake about this. Jesus is trustworthy. The problem is with us. Okay? When I say that trusting Jesus isn't easy, it's not because of him, it's because of us. It's not you, it's me, that kind of thing. It's not you, Jesus, it's us. He's trustworthy. But it's hard because we're sinners. Haggai's last sermon could be reduced to two simple words then, trust God. Zerubbabel is learning that he has to trust God. The nation of Judah is learning that they have to trust God, to trust that beginning December 18th, Yahweh would bless him as he said. They had to trust that even though there was opposition to rebuilding the temple, that he was with them, that he was near. And you and me, as we start a new year, we're learning once again that we have to trust God today and every day after today. So Haggai's last sermon isn't just for Zerubbabel and company. It's for people who haven't been trusting God lately. His sermon is for people like us 
who haven't been trusting God lately. That means that this book is for us because sometimes we really stink at trusting God, don't we? I can admit that. Sometimes I really stink at trusting God. Sorry if I burst your bubble about what pastors are like, but we're just like you, okay? That's it. We may have pastor at the front of our name. We're just like you, okay? So if you look up to pastors and think, oh, they're so holy. There's a... No, I'm, I'm, I'm letting the cat out of the bag. Sorry, pastors. We're just like you. We struggle to trust the Lord, even though we handle his word all the time. We're just like you. I can admit that. Sometimes I really stink at trusting God. And so Haggai 2 is for people who haven't been trusting God lately. Is that you? Have you been trusting God? If not, then you're in good company. And there's some good news in chapter 2 that you can rub your nose into. So the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Haggai, if you will, is saying something like this to us today. It's not too late. So you haven't been trusting me. Okay, let's start over today. Trust my promises. Trust me. By the way, I love insurmountable odds. Don't worry. Just rub your nose into my promises. That's the Christian life right there. That's discipleship. Learning anew to trust Jesus. And when has that ever gone bad for us? When has trusting Jesus ever turned out bad for you? When have you ever said, I trusted the Lord and, man, it, he didn't come through. Never happens because he's always faithful. And as Haggai reminds us two times again, he tells us that Jesus is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of heavenly armies, the Lord of heavenly military troops. I think you can trust a God who describes himself that way, the Lord of heavenly military troops. Ray Ortland said, If no one ever thinks we're crazy for the way we stick our necks out in trusting the promises of God, are we really living by faith? If no one ever thinks we're crazy and out of our minds for the way that we stick our necks out and trust the promises of God, are we really living by faith? If no one scratches their head when they hear about how much peace we have when trouble comes our way, if no one scratches their head when they hear about how calm we are in the face of hardship, if no one scratches their head when they hear about how we are simply trusting Jesus when all of our creature comforts fail, are we really living by faith? And what better place to trust God and stick out our necks in trusting His promises than when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? It's here that we feed on Christ by what? By faith. We feed on Christ by faith at this table. So all that God is for us in His Son, Jesus, we find when we come to this table. We come to this table and we're sticking our necks out in faith and trusting what Jesus has done for us. We're sticking our necks out and trusting that He lived a perfect life for us, that He always trusted God perfectly for us. We're sticking our necks out and trusting that he died a brutal, bloody death on the cross for our sins. We're sticking our necks out and trusting that God raised him from the dead by the power of the Spirit. We're sticking our necks out and trusting that his love never fails 
even if we do, even when we do. So as we come to the table today, stick your neck out and trust the promises of God. Trust that the sins that you can't seem to forget, Jesus can't remember. I mean, the world looks at us like, that's it? The world looks at us and says, that is it. A little cracker thing and a little swig of juice, and that's how you feed on Christ by faith? That's it, that little meal? Yeah. <laughs> that's a stick-your-neck-out kind of moment. Coming to this table for me to feed on Christ by faith. And the world says, that's all you got? It's all we got and it's all we need. That in this book, Word and Sacrament. Now, before we take the Lord's Supper, I want to return to a Hebrew word that Haggai uses two times in verse 22, the word overthrow. God is going to overthrow and destroy his enemies at his final advent. So, if you haven't, make sure you repent of your sins and you flee to Jesus for salvation. Will you do that now? Turn from your sin and flee the wrath to come. God will forgive you and adopt you into his family. But did you know also that the prophet Hosea uses this same word, overthrow? Hosea 11.8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Those are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. God's people have actually turned away from the Lord, and yet His heart moves toward them in what? Compassion. Now, what's interesting is that the two cities mentioned there, Adma and Zeboim, they were actually suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, the earlier Haggai said, uh, I'm going to overthrow the nations and kingdoms, same word used to overthrow the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Lord is saying he doesn't want to destroy his people like those wicked cities. How can he do that to the people he loves? He can't. But then Hosea says that God's heart recoils within him. That word translated as recoil in that verse in the ESV is the same word for overthrown. God's heart is overthrown when his people walk away from him. When we run away from Jesus, his heart is overthrown. But overthrown with what? Answer, compassion. He moves out in tenderness towards us. Yes, he disciplines us. Hebrews 12, he disciplines us. But his knee-jerk reaction is one of kindness, compassion, tenderness. After all, what leads us to repentance? The law? The whips and terrors and threats of God's law? No, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And we see his kindness here at this table. And it's just a simple thing, but it reminds us that God keeps his promise. Just like in Zerubbabel's day, and just God's people, they were nothing special, always under some powerful government that often oppressed them. That's the way it's always been with the church. We're, we're not much to look at, but you know what? We're still here. Where's Babylon? See you later. Where are the Persians? Adios. Where's Stalin, Hitler? See you later. Who's still here? The church. We're not much to look at, but we're still here. 
all these years later, kingdoms and politicians coming and going, and it's God's people, the church, who are still here. Just like with Zerubbabel and company. They were just God's people plodding along, feasting on God's promises when everything seemed bleak and life was hard. But then one day, after all those years of just slogging through and waiting on the promised Messiah, waiting on that royal king, that signet ring to come, after all those years, you read the words in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. I know that may not give you the warm fuzzies unless you like names that are really hard to pronounce. And I just faked my way through all that, okay? That's how you do it. When you read genealogy, you just fake your way through it. I've had people say, how do you know? How do you do this? I just pronounce it with authority and passion like I know what I'm doing. I'm sure I mispronounced some names there. But I know that That passage may not give you the warm fuzzies upon first reading, but it should. It's proof that God kept his promise to Zerubbabel and to David, back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam and Eve. Yeah, there's no fireworks or razzmatazz with Matthew's genealogy. It's what's-his-face became the father of that dude, and that dude became the father of so-and-so. So you may not underline or highlight these verses, And it might not give you goosebumps, but in between all of those names, you have years and months and weeks and days and minutes and seconds of God faithfully keeping his promises to his people, just like he's doing in your life right now, through all of your years and months and weeks and days and minutes and seconds. And because you're so prone to forget that, and because I'm so prone to forget that, God gave us a little meal to remind us, to remind us that he keeps his promises and we can trust him. To know we can't see into the future and we don't know what the coming year will be like, but we can look to this table and this table reminds us of something that happened in the past when Jesus gave himself for our sins, the innocent for the guilty. You can trust the God who does something like that. And this meal just might give you the warm fuzzies. Let's pray. Father, we want to take a moment and repent. We have not trusted you as we should. We admit that we are sinners and damaged and broken and cracked because of Adam's sin. And therefore, we do struggle. And yet, you're so faithful. We are so spectacularly unfaithful, and you're spectacularly faithful to us. And we just confess that now and ask you to forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Wash us. 
cleanse us, remind us that you can't remember our sins anymore. Thank you for Jesus that he always obeyed your law. He always trusted your promises. Help us to remember that he has given us his righteousness. So as we eat and drink today, Father, and we feast on faith, as we feast on Christ by faith, Lord, would you strengthen us for the journey ahead, Lord? Would you help us to warn our neighbors of the wrath to come? Would you help us to be grateful? We ask in your name, amen.